Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. We are in the middle of our champion series, talking to analytically minded people from teams that have won titles in the past year. We started last week with Ravi Ramanini, director of soccer analytics for the MLS Cup champion Seattle Sounders. We continue this week with Jonathan Toskus, the manager of advanced scouting for the World Series champion Washington Nationals. Jonathan's been at the Nets since 2010 in various capacities, and in our conversation, we'll talk about what he does for the Nationals and what he's been up to with the season currently suspended, the data he uses and what he produces for players and coaches, the importance of building relationships and communication in working with data and players, working in the replay room during games, how he sort of saved the National season, his career path to the Nationals, and we'll get stories from the aftermath of winning the World Series. Then True Media's Joe Wagoner will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, our Champion Series continues here on Expected Value with Jonathan Toskus, the World Series champion, Washington Nationals. We're joined now on Expected Value by a guy who got to do with a lot of us, dreamed of as a kid, rushed the field when his team won the World Series last year. It's... John Toskus, manager of advanced scouting for the reigning World Series champion Washington Nationals. JT, welcome to the show. Are you still celebrating five months later? <laughs> Thanks for having me, Paul. I am not at the moment, but yeah, we uh, we did quite a bit of it this offseason. That, that that introduction doesn't get old, so I appreciate it. <laughs> reigning World Series champs is a little longer than we expected, but still sounds good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's start just by talking about these last couple of weeks. I saw you down in Florida, I think March 11th. Clubhouses were just starting to close outsiders. Next day, MLB suspended spring training. No one really knows when the season might start right now. What have these last couple of weeks been like for you? I guess the word is that everyone's been using is unprecedented, and it certainly has been that. It's um, Yeah, it's been crazy. We you know, right around the time we saw you is when it was heating up, and, and we've obviously heard uh, the, the dangers of this virus, but... Uh, once they started closing clubhouses, it got a little, you know, then we started to slowly talk about delaying the season and then it, then it got real serious. And, and it's been hour by hour, everything's been different. And then they just sent us home. So, you know, I've been home for a while now and it's, it's a strange, strange place, you know, opening days today <laughs> and I'm at home yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, just kind of staying at home, put, you know, doing my part and just not leaving the house and once we get through this and baseball is kind of lower on the priority list but um yep. you know once this once we get through this as a as a world really we can move forward yeah just sit, we're just sitting here waiting <laughs> yeah yeah everybody seems to be so your title is manager of advanced scouting i think people in the game know what that means but i mean even i didn't really know exactly what it meant until a couple years ago so just tell us generally what is the advanced scouting department and what do you do in general sure uh the advanced scouting department probably really five to ten years ago was a guy you know ahead of the team in the seats uh, watching the series prior to our opponent or our opponent that we're about to face. And basically, uh, given the coaching staff some notes, uh, that has evolved with data and, you know, video and, and being able to watch games from a variety of different sources and kind of smooshing that all together. It, it created more efficiencies in some sense, but it also created a lot more clutter. Um, mm -hmm. So now we kind of have a group of four of us, uh, myself, Greg Ferguson, Kenny Diaz. We're all with the team for all 
162. And then we have Jim Cuthbert, who still is in that traditional eyes in the seats role. So I guess as a department, we have all of these different sources of information, whether it's eyeballs or video or data or, you know, we work tremendously close with our coaching staffs. And I guess to sum it up, my job is to kind of smush it all together into concise reports every three days. As we call it, we have a final exam every three days. And more so off of that is how do we translate it and and get that onto the field? Oh, says ultimately, this is kind of those used to be like the big binders in the dugouts you would see coaches flipping through. And now uh, I assume it's more of an iPad sort of thing or, or a tablet, right? It, exactly right. And, and actually, when I first started this, we were still doing binders. We just had a, a coaching staff that preferred binders. Um, and then when Davies crew came in, we kind of rolled out a whole new platform and and you don't think of stuff like that, but that seems very uh, minor. But any minute that we can shave off doing the mundane things is yeah. another minute we have to get ready for our next opponent. So that saved us hours. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you're usually traveling with the team. What does a typical day look for you like for you during the season? Um, I'm probably different than some guys. I can't. Uh, I'm not very good at locking in on opponents or ourselves we do a lot of self-scouting but uh i'm not the best at locking in when i'm at the ballpark so i try to do a lot of work especially when i'm on the road Uh, i'll just grind in my hotel room on the opponent and get kind of the nuts and bolts of what i need and i like to get to the ballpark and interact with the players and staff as they do to kind of get our message across and as to what we want to do and how we're preparing for today's game. Obviously I still, you know, am at my little workstation and, and uh, you know, we have some cleanup work to do, but I, I like to come in already kind of being done. And then, uh, you know, we're in the video room. So a lot of players just kind of hang out there. The starting pitcher will pop in, a lot of hitters will pop in and we just have to be ready for answering questions. And that's really hard to do when you're kind of catching up on the hours of, of work that goes into that. So then I, again, other people are different, but I, I like to kind of come in and be very flexible when I'm at the ballpark and uh, get my coffee in the morning and hang out in my hotel room and, and do a lot of the work there. So what's an example of the kind of output that you have, like the, whatever, a one sheet you might hand a starting pitcher or what kind of questions do guys come to you with? Basically, what's the, the end goal that you're coming up with for every game? Yeah, and I, I do a lot. I'm a little uh, biased here. I do a lot of work with run prevention. Um, mm-hmm. Greg Ferguson does works a lot with our hitting coaches and our hitters on the opposing pitchers, but uh, I get a lot of pitchers that come in with me and we just go down the roster um, of who we're about to face. And, and, you know, I'll use an example. Max Scherzer is extremely data driven. Right. Um, he uses a lot of stuff from different sources, including true media that he has specific questions that he gets his specific answers and nobody else really wanders into that territory. You know, as you can probably imagine, he wants to know how he gets as many strikeouts as possible. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, so he looks for his certain things there. Um, whereas, you know, Patrick Corbin or Annabelle Sanchez might, be more video based. So they come in and we kind of look in video and on, uh, you know, certain swing paths or whatever. They might be a little bit more traditional. A guy like Strasburg will use everything. Uh, we push stuff out to his iPad every day or every series. And he has, you know, whether it's at bats versus him or, you know, at bats 
recent at bats or uh, at bats versus guys similar to him. And he'll kind of do his homework at home on the video side. And then we provide him with, um, you know, our traditional hitter report is a basically a double-sided report of uh, a combination of data and write-ups mm-hmm. from myself and Jim Cuthbert, who was on the road. So yeah, he kind of gives them a blend of, of everything that he wants. And then honestly, we have guys that aren't ready to ingest a whole lot of information. Sure. Um, so that's more of a traditional pitchers meeting or uh, a couple of, of points that we might have for our bullpen that's on iPads in the bullpen. Yes. And that's, I guess, kind of my point of when I get in there, I'm really, I focus a lot on just creating relationships with these guys and, and just mm-hmm. being flexible and, and being able to answer questions as they come up because each guy is different. And yeah, if you treat them like they're all the same, they'll just kind of, they won't know where to get any information. That's what you want to avoid. How do you kind of go about that? Because yeah, you said guys are different. You have, you know, obviously there's rotating players coming up and down, injured, not injured. Uh, how do you go about building those relationships and figuring out kind of what they want to know? Yeah, it's hard because guys have come from other organizations and, and that have treated them far more different uh, or far differently. Like, um, you know, there's been people that kind of have gotten handed things that this is what you have to do. Um, and there's been teams that don't get anything, uh, or, or players that don't get anything from former teams. So it's, um, and I think across the league, it's probably changing into more of an adaptive place, but I just kind of get to know them as people. And that's probably what a lot of spring training is for. And we have, you know, we have meetings during spring and as we get closer to the season, we have more and more formal meetings as, you know, and the rosters get smaller, so it's a little bit more manageable, but, uh, we kind of gradually pick their brains on what they're looking for. And then they come with questions. We're very player driven. So we kind of provide them with what we can get for them, but ultimately they need to want it. So I think we do a pretty good job of creating those relationships. So it's a very comfortable conversation of them just kind of spitballing ideas and, and we go from there. So we talk a lot about on this show about how important communication is. What are some of the keys for you in communicating the data in your role so that the players can understand and apply it. Me personally, you know, I, I don't have big league time. I don't have professional time. It's, it's hard to really come in and, and pound your chest and say, this is how we're going to do things or, or, Hey, the, the data says this, this is how we're going to do it. I really try to make it come from them. So in order to communicate anything, you, you just need their trust and, Trust doesn't come overnight. Trust doesn't come on a piece of paper. You really, they really just have to get to know these people and that takes time. And, uh, you know, once you have it, then communicating is easier. (laughs) If you don't have it, communication, communicating is impossible. So I spend a lot of time just, just getting to know these guys and, and we're fortunate to have a manager that, that provides a lot of ways to do that during spring training. We, you know, it sounds stupid, but we have miniature golf events at night and we have, <laughs> you know, different guys have different parties at night. And uh, usually by the beginning of March, we know everybody and uh, we are a cohesive unit, as was probably seen publicly last year during our World Series run. But um, we're just around a very cohesive unit, which makes communicating very easy. But with our player data and information, that's kind of come secondary because once we have that trust, and we communicate it, uh, they're all ears. So we can kind of 
just to have very professional conversations about what kind of data we want to present them. And, and it's a great two-way relationship. We've talked kind of a lot about the, the process and stuff. Dive a little bit more into the details. What sort of data and tools are you using without, of course, giving away secrets or anything? What are you using and how has that changed in your years with the Nats as far as what's available and what people look for? Sure. I think it's, I think in the past, people have just kind of gone on, on very small sample sizes of uh, different things. And now we can almost use way more involved uh, projection systems and uh, kind of simulate different scenarios rather than just going, well, this guy does this against left-handed pitchers. Right. <laughs> you know, defensive positioning is a good example. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure a lot of these people do the same, but it's let's take this pitcher and this hitter and can we get an expected outcome? And that kind of gives us a, a better idea of where to place people. Instead of just saying this guy pulls the ball, you know, right. 77% of the time on the ground, well, where does he pull the ball? You know, so that's kind of where it's evolved there. Instead of instead of using um, a small sample of his 25 ground balls, let's try to somehow use some data to get that number to 5,000 or whatever it may be. Even though they, they weren't actually hit, can we simulate something that can that can give us that? You know, and other other ways are just just um, you know. I, I think it's just come such a long way in in taking that next step from from the simple statistics, mm-hmm. and just kind of translating that into well, how how can we put it on the field? So what do you do? What do you then do during the game? So you've done all this prep. Guys have all the information. It's in the dugout on the tablets and whatnot. So what do you do? What's your role during the game? Well, me specifically, I uh, run the replay system. So. I'm basically on the other end of the dugout phone, um, watching every second of every game pretty intently and just kind of be ready if I see anything wacky happen. And obviously the, the obvious ones are, are easy, but we kind of watch all the obscure stuff too, just in case they pop up. But yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of have 14 cameras kind of just hanging out back there and locking in. Yeah. So what's the, what's that process? So there's a, we'll say close play at first. Yes. Walk me through kind of what that next, you know, 30 seconds to a minute is like for you as you figure out if you're supposed to, if you want to challenge it or not. Well, it's definitely 30 seconds last year. This year it will be 20 seconds. So Mm -hmm. uh, that is the challenging part. Not only knowing what's going to be probably a challenging, a challengeable play, but, you know, you talk about communication. I mean, that's probably the most crucial part is now you have 20 seconds to talk to a coach who is probably a little bit less patient than I am about an answer. (laughs) And, you know, we're trying to do five different things at once from 14 different angles. So um, I guess when the play happens and call it a play at first, uh, which is, you know, the most common and the most obvious, Mm -hmm. um, if it's a close play at first, I can start up reviewing that play within two seconds of after it's completed. So this fictitious clock that's out there that says 20 seconds that the umpires go off of, <laughs> you know, we have to, the phone rings on our case, the phone rings, we do it. Uh, the dugout calls us, um, just, you don't want to both do it at the same time. It kind of creates some issues. So we just okay. wait for their call. And in, in most cases they're very good. Obviously if it's something they might not have seen, then I call, but 
you know, if it's a play at first, they always call me and we just talk through it. And, and like you said about communicating, I have trust with them. They know what I'm looking at. They definitely trust me in terms of what I'm looking at. Um, and then we'll, I'll just kind of talk, talk them through. I'll say, Hey, uh, you know, I'm looking at this. Um, give me a second here. I'm waiting on this angle, you know, okay. Yes. And then we have some, we have some hot words like, uh, you know, basically we say challenge or no challenge. Uh, we don't like to use too many words because certain, yeah. it's like the third base coach, certain things sound too similar, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah. And then, and then we just go, you know, if it's a play at first, it has to be pretty obvious, but I would say on the, on the whole, we have an agreement with our coaching staff that we're pretty aggressive. We're not afraid to lose challenges, you know, and talk about data. The data does suggest that if it's a crucial play in the game, the odds of maybe getting that, if it's say 60, 40, right. I don't know, I don't know how you call something 60, 40, but say it's, yeah, yeah. man, this looks really close. We might get this, but it might be one of those gray areas of, you know, not enough to overturn. Mm-hmm. Um, the data suggests it's still worth it to make a run right. at it. Right. It, it's yeah. worth it in the eighth inning of a tie game. It's not worth it in the first inning. Or something yeah, like but it might be worth it in the third inning. You know, we, right. we've we've never been afraid to lose one early if it's a run or, mm-hmm. you know, a big two-out situation that gets us out of an inning. I mean, you have to kind of weigh all that as the game's going. And then, because once that 20 seconds happens, you have to already have that in your head. So it's just, yeah. it's no different than like a fielder, you know. <laughs> if the ball gets hit to me and there's runners on certain bases, what do I do with it? If we're in the second or third inning and there's a huge spot with two outs, well, I have to weigh all those options whether I want to make a risk or not. So, um, but most cases we we are aggressive and I've probably lost too many, but <laughs> you know, in the eighth inning, you get another one if you need it. So right. that's kind of the way we we approach it. Now, obviously, you don't want to just be a gunslinger from the first inning, but uh, we don't. We never want to say what if. You know, what if we challenge that? Would would this game be different? We'd rather just get the umpires under the hood. So, with your role in the replay room, you got some publicity last year, uh, Game Six of the World Series, when maybe I'm overstating this, but I think you basically saved the season, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, t- t- tell us what happened here for those who don't know the story. What what happened in Game Six that you played a key role in? Yeah, it, it got some attention. I think mainly because it was Game Six of the World Series. It's something right. we always do. Uh, we do it opening day. We do it May first. We do it June. You know, it's it's we have each thing we look at from each pitcher or player that, that, again, it's player-driven, so we know what to look for for each guy. One of our pitchers, Steven Strasburg, had a, um, you know, he had different tells. I think every pitcher has a tell. Um, he's really concerned about it because uh, we've gotten burned with it in the past, specifically in Arizona. Uh, just last year, um, they clearly had it. We kind of knew, but I don't like to kind of tell pitchers during a game if they're maybe – yeah, I, I'm certainly not a guy that's going to tell someone to change any part of their mechanic during a game, uh, yeah. even if it's pre-pitch. So uh, I knew it during that game. I could see it. it. It was he was doing something, you know, differently on on a heater than his changeup. And Arizona definitely knew it. So we kind of talked after the game, and he was he was frustrated by it. And and I think we got it handled after the game. I was upset because I wish, I wish I probably did something during the game, but. You know, 
there's a lot of emotions in, in pitchers during games and we, we don't we don't go there they're right they have enough to worry about um anyway fast forward to game six we fixed the problem and then sure throughout the year i'm sure hitters had some different things but the main problem we we think we fixed throughout the year and it didn't rear its ugly head until game <laughs> six of the world series the first inning uh um, time yeah so i'm like in the, my head i'm you know oh god here we go sure thing George Springer, I think it was Springer Altuve, you know, two loud noises, you know. So in between, after that first inning, I ran to the dugout. Uh, and that's kind of what got the attention. I think it was a Sports Illustrated article or something. Um, I, I ran to the dugout and I told Menhart, I said, he's doing it again. We, You know, we're not doing this again. It's game six of the World Series. Yeah. Someone's got to tell him. Paulie Menhart is great, and, and he grabbed him. He actually, uh, how it went down was Paul watched it for the second inning. Because it's one thing to see it on video. Right. Uh, can, can hitters actually see this thing or, you know, or what? So Right. You, do you have slow motion from a weird angle and you're picking it up or something? Yeah. yeah. Is it early enough for a hitter to see it to make a decision? Or is it, you know, or is it too late where, you know, they can't focus on that? And, and honestly, they can't make a decision in time anyway. But... Uh, I thought it was, and I told Paul, and Paul watched it in the second inning, live from the dugout, and, and then he saw it himself. So he, you know, grabbed Strauss after that second inning, and, and Strauss was very welcoming to it because of. And you talk about communication, but we, you know, communicated a lot about it after that Arizona game. So it kind of came full circle and, and made us mm-hmm. more comfortable bringing it to him, and. Uh, he was all ears and we made a small adjustment. He, you know, he like wiggled his glove or, you know, he just disguised what he thought, you know, how he could do it. He wasn't going to make any major adjustments. It's game six of the world series, but he just changed up his tempo and, and his, you know, some things with his hands. And if anything else, it just made him more confident that the Astros didn't have him, even if they didn't have him, you know, even, even if the Astros didn't see what I saw, Strasburg knew that, that he wasn't tipping his pitches after he made the adjustment. So hmm. that was probably the, the biggest factor in the whole thing. Cause you know, and everyone, everyone gives me a lot of credit for that and I'm, I'm very thankful for it. But the fact is Steven Strasburg was dominating the rest of the game. So yeah. he can overcome some. Yeah. What do you remember about the end of the game? Just everyone's obviously out on the field. Hudson strikes out Brantley. Then what from your recollection? Yeah. One, one funny story I have, the video room is, uh, you go into the dugout in Houston, the visitors' dugout, and you have to climb a number of stairs. And we're kind of around the corner to the left after that, so we're to the left, and the clubhouse is to the right. We kind of had an idea going into the inning. You know, we're up four. You right. know, you never want to say it, but we're all pacing around. Let's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not going to uh-huh. sugarcoat it. We were really nervous, right. oh yeah, uh, or excited, or you know, just a wide range of emotions, and. Um, I remember thinking, and I said it to to Greg and Kenny, who were in there with me, um, you know, because we log video and do some other things in that room. Uh, so the three of us are always in there. And I remember saying, hey, guys, we're the only people with a live feed in here. The clubhouse and the clubhouse staff and, and our traveling secretary, who's, you know, was an expo. You know, these wow. guys are eight seconds behind us up here. So, <laughs> so we have to be quiet. And that sounds... <laughs> Sounds like a big task, but I said this with two outs. And I said, we're probably going to win the World Series here. We have to like go nuts in this room quietly and wait for those guys. Because <laughs> I don't want to ruin it for the rest of the clubhouse. It's like it's like being in that restaurant where there's one game on delay and one oh, yeah. we have two yeah. people cheering. So I just, 
I don't know why my brain went there, but I was like, I don't, I don't want to ruin it for these guys. Um, and then fast forward, Hudson strikes out Brantley, and we just lose our minds. <laughs> and, and it probably, I don't, I think we shut the door, and we, I, maybe I was overthinking it. I don't, I asked them after, and they're like, no, we didn't really hear you, but you know, we heard a lot of, you know, we heard the crowd even. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, it was like we prepared for this, and then as soon as that last out was made, we just went crazy. Um, oh, that's great. And it was, it was a really cool, cool moment because, you know, Greg and Kenny and myself, we, we it's a lot of work throughout the season. So yeah. to finally have it be over and not with a loss, like my last nine years, like, man, <laughs> what, a, what a great moment. So we, you know, we did our own little celebration and then we just ran onto the field and all hell broke loose. Uh, that's great. We'll get back to maybe a story from after winning the world series in a little bit, but I want to talk first just about kind of how you got to where you are now. So you, You've been with the Nats in different capacities since 2010. Before getting to the Nationals, what was your you know history with baseball and kind of your career path as you went this direction? Sure. I, I had a very different one, I'm sure. I, and I think everyone has a different one. Uh, as I was trying to get in, I remember asking somebody, what what is a baseball career path even look like? And they said, right. it doesn't look like one. Everyone's, there is no career path. It's just mm-hmm. everyone kind of meanders in their own way uh into the game so uh, i was a decent high school player I, I went to university of massachusetts to play uh it didn't work out but um i probably picked the wrong level you know it was the one division one program that that really wanted me so i went there and just wasn't good enough and i kind of didn't like baseball i would say for a l- short time you know at least not enough to to do what you know wake up at five in the morning and then go back at three and you know so kind of, it was too much for me. Um, I wish it wasn't that. And if I could go back, I'd probably definitely change the way I did things, but whatever. I just went to a good school and got a business degree and, and started in the finance world and worked for a, fina- a large financial company in Boston. And then I kind of got the itch again. So I went back to UMass and got a master's in sports management, which was a great decision on my part. I just, it was just like a refining school, great network, mm-hmm. uh, one of the best programs in the country. Um, it just kind of fine tuned my mind into thinking about how to maybe pursue a, a job in sports, really. Like I didn't even have a, I, I was just had a really open mind at that point. And um, anyway, long story short, got hooked on with an independent team in New Hampshire part of a collegiate summer league team as well, and just kind of learned how to run a baseball team, kind of the logistics behind it all, meaning, you know, how do we sign play? Once we talk to an agent and sign players, well, how do we get them here? And how do we execute a contract? And how do we, you know, create a roster? And, and it was an independent professional league. So it was a very different kind yeah. of player. You had kids just out of college, you had former major leaguers, all kind of formed into one. So I learned a lot and just to how, how things actually get done. And I kind of parlayed that into a spot with the nationals, which started as a Florida operations job, which was basically running spring training, major league and minor league uh, okay. on, the log- on the logistical side. And then that kind of morphed into a player development position since it was located all year at their player development facility. And then got into a little bit of scouting through their scouting department and then a job came open in advanced scouting, and that was a six-year process. So, so yeah, there was really no I, – I never really jumped into scouting right away. I kind of learned from the ground up on how, you know, how to develop players and, and what goes into that with the process and working with coaches and 
creating relationship with coaches and players through that side of it. So it was really a, even though the jobs were a little bit different, it was really a natural fit because I already yeah. had relationships with these guys. Yeah. So what, what did you pull from that, like that business background and, and management background? What do you pull from that that helps you in the role you're in now? Yeah, I think it's the diversity of everything really translated with me because a lot of people, and there's no wrong way. This I'm not uh, sliding anybody, but if you have, if you were a former player in college and got drafted and played, and then now you're scouting or now you're coaching, a lot of some guys have a one track mind. Um, I think seeing the business side of the world kind of gives you a little bit of look into you know the psychology of the player, or you know maybe you have a better understanding of uh, how strength and conditioning works, or how a marketing department plays into this whole role, uh, the finances behind it. Um, so even though you don't directly use it, you understand how all these decisions get made, yeah. and understand you know, how this process works um, instead of just being a baseball rat. I think you can be a baseball rat and have some, you know, knowledge of the financial world or the business world, you know, and then obviously the managing people is managing people. And I think, you know, if it's a farm director or a a, manager of advanced scouting or, or a general manager, you know, baseball is kind of what your people do, but you know, what makes guys tick, you know, what, these coaches and players that are all over the world, I mean, they have families at home and they're playing for their lives, right? And and yeah. there's a lot that goes into that that you have to kind of understand about people. And and again, we, we've been coming back and back to communication, but that, once you understand that about people, mm-hmm. whatever message you're trying to deliver to them, whether it's in player development or in advanced scouting, once you kind of know what makes that person tick, you, you kind of know how to have a conversation with them about what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. So someone comes to you now, they say, Hey, I want to do, I want to do what you do, or I want to get into baseball kind of where you were around grad school or something. What, what's your kind of go-to advice that you tell them for someone looking to get into the field? Sure. It's the first one is very easy for me. You have to be ready to work your butt off and grind and everyone, Mm -hmm. I feel like grinding is, you know, everyone's everyone. That's a sexy term, right? Oh, he's a grinder. Yeah, yeah. We, we really grinded this year, but until you try to get started in baseball, especially from a from a non playing background, you have no idea what that means. Just with like the day to dayness of it all, and it's a game every day for you know however many months and things like that. Well, that's that's once you've gotten your job. I'm talking about <laughs> once even before. I'm that. talking about even trying to get an internship or an entry level job. You have to. Yeah move to random cities you have to move to different cities you have to Mm -hmm. share apartments with people you have to you know be the first one at the ballpark in a ball to the first last one to leave when the last coach leaves at three in the morning um you're just kind of that guy for a long time and and all your friends are out of college making way more money than you and have weekends off and you know get to do stuff in the summer and we're at ballparks all day so it's like I said, until you live it, you, you have no idea what that means. So my advice to them is make sure you want it. Um, right. Because if you kind of, yeah, if you want to be on the field celebrating the World Series, yeah, everyone does. I get that. But yep. if you really want it, you it has to be, you know, nine or 10 or, or, and I don't take this lightly. Some guys, it's either never or 20, 30 years. I mean, you have to really want to be involved in that process more so than the results. So it's, 
Sure. It's just make sure you really, really want to do it. It's an awareness of what you're getting into. Yeah. Yeah. A willingness to make uh, the sacrifices yeah. and things like that. And then obviously on top of that, it's knowing the data. It's it's watch sure. as many games as you can. Uh, you know, all the all the prerequisites to being right. a good baseball person. Yeah, you gotta have the built-in knowledge basically. Right. All right, we're gonna wrap things up here with our playing favorites segment, run through a few different favorites we'll get out of you. What's your favorite number and why? My lucky number's always been eight. I was a big Bo Jackson fan, believe it or not. Yeah, and no, uh, he wore it. eight with the White Sox. Wow. And I remember I was a freshman in high school and I made the baseball team and I I was I'm not a big person and eight was available and I was like, Yeah, I'm taking eight and I've always worn eight. Huh. That's Which funny. is weird because Bo Jackson was actually 16 with the Royals. Right. But I, I was going to say, as a Royals fan. Yeah, right. <laughs> 16 must have been an XL. I'm only a large. so <laughs> Yeah, we still see a lot of 16 jerseys at Royals games and such. So it's funny to have someone from the White Sox angle. Uh, what's, who, who's your favorite player as a kid? Was it Bo, somebody else? It was Bo. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I guess I really didn't have one. Um, Bo, I loved. I loved watching him at both sports. I mean, I just. Yeah, every poster in my room was that Bono's whatever poster. And yep. it was probably him. Um, I certainly was a different kind of player. I, I liked watching growing up in Boston, you know, as I was, I got a little older, I liked Nomar Garcia Parra. I just liked the way he played shortstop and believe it or not growing up in Boston, I really liked Derek Jeter. Um, so yeah, it was, even though I was a, I was more of a Red Sox fan than definitely than a Yankee fan. I, I liked, I just like guys that uh, played the game the right way, and I thought both guys, those guys okay. did. All right, so you're traveling with the team a lot. What's your favorite city that you like to visit in season? You, know, you see this one on the schedule, and you're like, all right, this is going to be a, a good trip, or I'm excited about this. I'm a little boring when it comes to this because uh, I judge the cities, and you're going to laugh at this. Uh, I judge the yeah. cities on how convenient it is to get there, and that is the most boring answer you could ask <laughs> But uh, it also leads, give me an example. Well, it also leads to one of yeah, one of the better cities for that is also San Diego, which is obviously mm-hmm. the best one of the best cities in the country just right. to be in. So uh, yeah, our hotel is basically attached to the ballpark, so it's you know we can just walk anywhere. You know, we only have yep. mornings off, so I just I judge cities based on on where you can walk. But yeah, San Diego definitely takes the cake. I do like Pittsburgh. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is kind you stay of a, right across the river there. Yeah, it's not right across. There is a hotel. We stay kind of more downtown, but it's definitely walkable. Yeah. And the Roberto Clemente Bridge and yeah, our great. manager Davy is um, is of Puerto Rican descent, and and we go to the Roberto Clemente Museum. And I went there a couple years ago. That place is great. Loved it. It's unbelievable, and and just you know the the guy gives us a tour and just the stuff that's there. It's just a very unique city. So, but yeah. I do try to find the good in every city because there yeah. usually is what's a what's a favorite game you've been to i'm going to throw out the whole 2019 season because you could probably pick it it's three dozen games from that what's right. a favorite game that you've been to whether it's nationals whether it's you know anything you've been to what favorite one that you can think of off the top of your head sure um again growing up in boston i was very um fortunate uh my dad took me to a lot of games my dad was a uh, and is a diehard baseball fan i was actually at the 1986 world series i was four Um, and that probably wasn't my favorite, but it's his favorite because he's, he tells a story that, uh, everyone was, you know, Boston fans could get a little rowdy and they basically said that I I was a way. Yeah. They said I was a wasted (laughs) ticket. 
what are you doing? Bring, <laughs> what are you doing bringing your four year old here? It's a wasted ticket. And I rattled off both lineups, I guess. And I don't really remember this, but I basically stood up to the guy and just challenged him. And I was allowed to stay after that, I guess. But um, so I was a pretty knowledgeable kid when it came to baseball, only because my dad, you know, right, oh, yeah. did. But I was also at the uh, 2004, mm, uh, wow. whatever game was it, three, four, and five against the Yankees. So yeah, yeah, it was just a. I wouldn't say one game, but that whole month, I was sure. fortunate to be at a lot of those games, and it was it was exciting to say the least. Very cool. And finally, what's the favorite story you can that you can tell at least uh, in the aftermath from winning the World Series? What favorite thing that happened or that you got to do? So it was like a, it was a three day bender after it, um, <laughs> which led to basically every member of the traveling party getting sick, uh, like a cold, you know what I mean? Like we, right. no one slept. Uh, it was, it was a party. I do. I remember a couple of things. I remember one, the, the hotel bar after we won the world series, um, shut us off at two o'clock in the morning in um, Houston in right. Houston. And yeah. we thought that was very strange because there was obviously a lot of people that made a lot of money at that bar and they were willing <laughs> to spend it. Right. So we had a few players say, okay, what's it going to take to keep this thing open? And they did not keep it open. Um, So, you know, we were all staying there. So we basically, everyone went to their rooms and robbed the mini bars. I say (laughs) robbed, we actually got robbed. We we all know how much a mini bar is, but we just basically brought the party back down to the bar and they didn't care about that. It was basically a Texas law that we were, they were really, they were really forcing, but I thought they'd, I thought they'd loosen those a little bit, but no, but, um, and then we went, we went to a Capitals game, um, mm-hmm. you know, and we did the, the parade was uh, one of them. I mean, that speaks for itself. Uh, the White House tour was great. Uh, we went to a Caps game and the Caps just treated us so well. And we kind of mimicked what they did when they won the Stanley Cup and came to Nats okay. Park. And hockey players and baseball players are very similar. They're they're just regular guys that like to have fun. And, and we had fun that night. We, they, they gave us a huge suite and the Caps were on fire. I don't even remember who they were playing, but, you know, they, they beat them. They brought us down to the clubhouse after we kind of did our post-game celebration with them. So we had guys dancing. We had Brian Dozier taking his shirt off. We had uh, Alex Ovechkin jumping on Ali Modami, our bullpen pitcher, because some guys would do that after wins. With It was just we were cranking our Latin music. There's no Latin hockey players on the Capitol. So it was <laughs> – it was, and then we went on the ice after. Um, it was just that. That to me. That, and then, like the next day, we kind of left. So that's kind of the lasting image that I have is is with this group of guys that were like, just they were just a twenty five friends really, yeah. and it, it was just cool to see that all from my perspective. Like, and then just a city that kind of embraced it all. It was it was really fun. So I guess I had I guess I had two moments for you, but. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, I'm sure you don't get tired of telling the stories, and I don't know we get tired of hearing them either. So, uh, no. Jonathan Toskus, manager of advanced scouting for, I'll say it again, the reigning World Series champion, Washington Nationals. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Oh, great, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Jonathan Toskus of the Washington Nationals for joining us on the show. Uh, would have been opening day when we talked last week, actually. 
For more behind-the-scenes baseball talk, check out the Expected Value Archives for our very first episode with the Twins Director of Baseball Ops, Daniel Adler, last September. We've also talked baseball within Phillies pitcher Jared Hughes and Sports Info Solutions' Mark Simon, among others. I'm joined now by Joe Wagoner, True Media's MLB product lead. Joe was down in Florida with me when we visited with the Nats a couple weeks ago. He's known Jonathan for a couple years as well. Joe, what did you kind of pull away from that interview with him? Thanks, Paul. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting to hear how multidisciplinary JT seems to be. I hadn't uh, heard about his playing playing days as a high schooler and uh, on the cusp of, of playing D1 baseball. Um, and then also, you know, having the numbers background, I think those two things tied together. Plus, all, it sounds like all the time he's he's put in getting to know the players has really put him in a unique position to be someone who who the players and coaches can trust and not just someone who's trying to convince them of some some analytical view on the game or some particular strategy. I thought his path was interesting too because I feel like a lot of people in his shoes are tend to be like maybe ex minor leaguers, even ex major leaguers, uh, who have that kind of direct experience with a lot of these players sometimes, or at least have been in the similar spots. And his was a little bit different. Now he came into it a little more business like, and was able to use those skills. And I, I like that he stressed a lot, you know, the importance of communicating and learning what each person likes. Because I remember. Like straight out of college, I worked in a lot of media, but mostly in small groups. So you kind of learn what everyone likes and you can do it one way and, and pretty much do things that way. When I went to ESPN in a role that was kind of similar to what JT does with the Nats, ESPN suddenly worked with a lot more anchors, a lot more talent, and that one size fits all approach didn't work uh, just because you're in a high pressure environment and they want to see exactly what they want to see on this note card that you're handing them or something you're telling them in their ear and had to learn a lot about, okay, this person likes this. This person wants to see pitching lines on the card. This person always needs what minute a goal will score, This, you know, whatever it might be. And there's a ton of work you have to do because when you're on the fly, whether it's on TV, whether it's during a game, whether it's in a baseball season, like you don't have time to redo everything or have those conversations because you just got to go and grind on to the next game. Uh, so, yeah, the importance of communication was he emphasized a lot. I knew it, but it was good to hear it from a different perspective. It, and it sounded like there was some direct payoff um, with that kind of related to the, the Strasburg story um, mm -hmm. in, in the World Series, where uh, since they had that experience and that communication together uh, previously, they were able to, to make a change during that game. So I think that's an example of that communication really paying off. Yeah, for sure. We both kind of had the thought of, we talked about how he came to it from a different spot. And there's just these, communi not communication gaps, but more just like knowledge gaps and experience gaps that you're talking about that are so different from whether it's you, me, JT, and different levels, when you, especially when you get to the major leagues, right? Yeah. So so like I, I'm a big sports fan, but I, I can't say I, I'm uh, super knowledgeable about baseball. And, it, and so to me, someone like JT seems really, really ingrained in baseball. But to hear him talk about I guess to hear his respect for the, the players and coaches and, and their different lens on the game, um, I, I thought was really interesting to show kind of how big those gaps are between someone uh, who's just a casual outsider and then people who are really ingrained in baseball. Yeah, those different levels. You know they exist, I think, but until you're there, like I remember at ESPN, look, I know baseball, I know soccer, but then I'm sitting there with you know a player or an analyst and they're just talking about things I hadn't even considered ever. And they're asking questions that I was like, oh, yeah, that's a great question. I have no idea. Uh, stuff like that. So it's good to bring those outsider perspectives and 
you have to be willing to learn. And that, again, goes to the communication that JT spoke about, goes to the relationships and things like that. All right, that'll wrap things up for the second Expected Value episode in our champion series. Thanks again to the Nationals' Jonathan Toscas for joining us on the show. Stay tuned next week as our champion series continues with Eric Tebow, assistant coach for the reigning WNBA champion, Washington Mystics. Until then, please subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow us, interact on Twitter, at True Media Sports, or me, at Paul Carr. Email us with feedback or guest suggestions, expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com. On behalf of Joe Wagoner and everyone at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Thank you.